So Acts chapter 18 verses 1, I'm going to read down to 22. This is mostly about Paul's time in the city of Corinth. It goes like this. <coughs> After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centre because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul had left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. This is God's word. So, here's a question for you. Are you a normal person? I see a lot of doubt. Are you normal? Do you think you're normal? I'm going to go for about 75% no on that one. Well, we'll come back to that in a while. I want you to hold that in your head. I'm going to suggest that you are. And that you can be even more normal if you follow God. And that the way to do it is by having the Spirit of God in you. Which, if you're a Christian, you already have. So I'm actually saying to you today, the Christians are the only normal people that there are. 
But anyway, your man last week was good, wasn't he? How many people were here? Hands up if you were here last week. Okay, yeah, he was good, wasn't he? If you missed it, uh, last week's sermon, we had the head of Christians in Sport, a guy called Graham. Is it Graham Daniels? Yeah. I think his name is and he was speaking to us and he was talking about doing evangelism and sometimes you know you might get sick of the, the, the hearing about the need for evangelism like we know we need to do it but this guy put a fire on me to do it again and um, I have to say actually I think the piece of teaching that seemed to resonate with, with people and myself the most was his command for us to just be normal remember that? It's normal to share with people what you did at the weekend or to ask them if they go to church. Do you go to church, Trev? Nah. That was my Welsh accent. It's not really much different, is it? Do you go to church, Trev? Nah. And anyway, that was evangelism. And then a couple of weeks ago, Christoph was talking to us about evangelism again. And he was talking about how Paul used things from the culture he was in, in Athens, um, to tell the story of the gospel. And he was saying how we should have a look at the stories in Belfast to make bridges with the folk around us, right? Remember he had, he had three examples? And um, if you weren't there, he, he talked about how there used to be a lot of optimism um, around the time at the end of the Troubles, the peace process. But has that really brought us peace? It's a good question. Or another is the fact that the, the motto of Belfast City is from the Bible. Or the fact, as we just saw there a couple of minutes ago, that the statues down in the C.S. Lewis Square are almost, it's like the world's biggest tract. That's what that is. And I was saying at our discipleship group, we were talking about it during the week, that we should get a tour guide thing going on down there, you know? Explaining the symbolism of all those statues. And you could bring them to the table and then end it there, but then have them turn around and see that huge statue of Aslan. Um, you know, five o'clock on a warm weekend, I think it'd be a, it could be a powerful thing. If you're interested in that, come and talk to me. And again, today, we have a story where, for the most part, Paul is preaching the gospel. So if you were to take this story as an example for us of, you know, what should we do, we'd have to say it's evangelism again. Sharing the faith telling people, convincing people that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not self-expression or sexual fulfillment or winning the lotto or security or whatever. Jesus is the Messiah. So it's been a month of evangelism, right? And we didn't plan that. We just followed the text. What it says is what we focus on. Nonetheless, I'd like to go a little bit beyond talking about evangelism today. Or not beyond it, but just, just talk about something else. Because what we see here is a kind of key to answering, answering the question that I've raised. Can you be normal? Are you normal? Can a Christian be normal? And as I said, I think we're going to see that actually we are the, the normal ones. Now... If you listened to uh, your man last week, Graham, it was striking to me that what he was saying about acting normal was essentially saying that you're allowed to talk about what you do and like. That's, that's okay to do. Being normal, in a very real sense, is just doing what's perfectly acceptable for someone to do. Like, why wouldn't you tell people what you were up to at the weekend? Why, why wouldn't you? 
I was talking to one of the lads again in our discipleship group and they were saying that they used to take time after church to think of like a one sentence summary of what church was about so that when Monday came, right, the next tomorrow, he'd go into work and he'd be able to answer the question, what were you doing at the weekend? And he'd say, oh, I was at church. We were learning about how Christians are actually quite normal. Right? Now that, that should get you a few conversations tomorrow. I dare any one of you to go and do that. But anyway, why, why wouldn't you tell people? What are you doing? Or if they asked you, uh, did you ever, or asking them, did you ever go to church? It's like, I, I don't know, uh, again, about a year ago, I think Christoph did a thing on evangelism, and he gave us these 10 tips from Tim Keller. You may have heard of him. And uh, the very first one is actually, he says, it's just letting people know that you are a Christian in a natural, unforced way. It's the same thing. So the big lesson over the last few weeks is to be normal. But then we come to Paul, and we see him get involved in all of this crazy stuff. Like every week he's doing something that's mental. He has visions from God, and actually in other translations says a dream. And I've made a few uh, smart-alecky comments over the years where I'd say, wouldn't it be great if he went to bed, and in the morning there was a letter from God under a pill, pillow, your pillow, telling you what, what to do, you know? Or maybe just some good advice, you know? Like sometimes you'd love some direct talk from God, but it never happens. And yet that's more or less what happens here. He goes to bed, and God speaks to him in this vision, or a dream. Not, and not through a bunch of weird, unrelated symbols either. He speaks to him with words. Anyway, the point is, it can be hard, I think, to see Paul as a normal person. And to that extent, it can be quite hard to relate to him. But that shouldn't be. Because actually, Paul, and you, and I, you and I, are very alike. We're all quite normal. Now today, I'm going to show you that God greatly helped Paul in this situation he was in, in Corinth. He gave him people to help with the jobs, direct words to encourage him, and, and state approval of what he was doing. And those things are good to have, yeah? But they're not ultimately what got Paul through this time. And they're not ultimately what will get us through whatever it is we are doing. But uh, let's look at this passage. I'm going to try something right now. Uh, Is he up there? No, he's not. One second. Right, so we have been looking at... um, uh, where, Where am I? Sorry. Yes. Most of the week, sorry, we've been ho- helping you situate yourself with some maps, right? And this week is no different. So I'm told that's hard to see, right? So if we zoom in there, he's in around Greece. Can you see that? Yeah? Okay. So he's in Greece. And maybe that's a bit better. A couple of weeks ago, we heard he was up in Thessalonica. And then he moved down here last time. Christoph was talking, he was in Athens. And it's just over here, a little bit to the left, is where Corinth is. I'll show it to you even better. There's Athens, and there's Corinth. It's only a couple of miles away. And it's on that little tiny isthmus there. It's only four miles wide, right? So that's where he goes. And then I'll just fill out some details for you as well, like this. Hopefully this will work. So Paul started off around here in Antioch. He goes all the way up to Turkey, up to the top of Greece. 
then down to Athens, and today he's here in Corinth. At the end of the story, he jumps over to Ephesus, back down to Caesarea, over to Jerusalem, and back up to Antioch. That's his journey, right? So those of you who like maps, now you should know where you are. Or, well, I hope you do. Tell me after how that worked. Um, so, yeah, let me tell you about Corinth, right? This city that he's in. Christoph was telling us that Athens, uh, about Athens a couple of weeks ago, and how it was full of idols, or all kinds of uh, religions, and how also it was the intellectual capital of the Western world. Well, Corinth was a leading city as well, but it was a place of business, right? It was right in the middle of Greece, and below it were all these kind of southern cities and provinces, and above it were all the uh, northern cities, right? And there was Corinth on this one little tiny spit of land, only four miles across, binding the north to the south, right? And also, because boats back then, they didn't really know how to sail out into the wide open sea. I don't think they knew how to sail into the wind, I think was the problem. Um, They had to hug the shoreline. So Corinth was essentially a, a, a great shortcut, okay? And the effect was, it was all the roads and all the boats came to it. So it was a great place to make money. And also, it was a very new city. I, this is something that was totally new to me. I didn't know about it. But 150 years previous to Paul coming, um, in 146 BC, it was destroyed, just wiped off the map. Because, because it rebelled against the Romans. And then about 100 years later, Julius Caesar says, like, hmm, I can do something here. And he put a little garrison in there, turned it into a Roman colony. And so anyone who was anyone went there to make money. Yeah? And over the next 100 years, it exploded from nothing into one of the biggest cities of the world at that time. And it was very unique. Because first of all, it didn't have any aristocracy. It had no tradition. It didn't even have a native population. As a result, it was one of the largest cities. It was incredibly densely populated, and it was totally multi-ethnic, diverse, this kind of thing. And so the only people who came to Corinth were people who came for one thing. They came to make money. And there was no reason to be there except to be successful. And then, you might have heard of this before, the last thing you need to know is that as, as is often as the place with places that make a lot of money, there was a lot of sex. The folk at the time actually came up with a word that described living without any rules and with lots of moral depravity, and the word was Corinthianize. Uh, there was a temple, apparently, to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and supposedly it was worked by 1,000 prostitutes. So, Christoph was talking to us about Athens being full of idols, while Corinth has two big ones. Sex and money. And I suppose the picture that I want you to see is that I know it can be hard to talk to people about the gospel when you come across folk who serve these two particular idols. Now look, I'm not saying Christians don't struggle with lust or greed. But the point should be obvious. It can feel hopeless to challenge folk who are so content with their houses and their holidays and their stuff to indicate that their loves of these things might be sending them ever so slowly to hell or that actually following Jesus might satisfy them even more at times that seems insurmountable am I really going to challenge these people on this? and the same goes with sex I was listening to a 
a radio DJ in the Republic once, and they were debating about homosexuality, as they often do, and there was a Christian on with this DJ. And the Christian guy made the point that all sex outside of marriage is not God's will. And the DJ was like, but sure, nearly everyone in their 20s or 30s who's not married is also not a virgin. Are they all sinning? And the Christian was saying, yeah, they are. And the DJ was completely incredulous that someone could believe this. It was like it never even crossed his mind. So, anyway, we can empathize with the idea that going to Corinth would have been hard. It presented some specific hardships. And before I go on with the story, you need to know that Paul was scared. He was actually scared when he came here. If you flick with me to page uh, 1145 of your Bibles, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And you can leave it open as well because I'll come back to it in a while. I'm going to read just verses 1 to 5. This is what Paul... This is Paul's own description of his state of mind when he, when he comes to Corinth. He says this, Brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now we'll look at that again in a moment, but I want you to see that he says there he came in weakness and with great fear and trembling. He wasn't eloquent or had much human wisdom. Paul's just like us when, he faced, when we are faced with these challenges. He didn't know what to think about them and he was scared. And we'll come back to that. But don't let yourself put distance between yourself and Paul when it comes to these issues. He came to Corinth scared and confused, just like we often are. So to continue then with the story, Paul lands, or he lands there, and I, I think this is the first time that we find out that he's actually got a trade, that he makes tents. And he's got a, a skill, and that's handy because he needs to make some money to survive. Because there's no one in the city that supports his cause. He's in total virgin territory for the cause of Jesus. No one there to help him. And that is until Priscilla and Aquila arrive. Now the text isn't clear. Maybe they were already Christians, but I suspect they weren't. But they were in the same trade as him, and he hooks up with them and effectively goes into business with him and stays there. So now he has a base of operations. And every Sabbath, that is every Saturday, he goes into the synagogue and tears into the Jews that he meets there with his mind and his mouth, which is to say he reasons with them. And the gospel can be undermined for sure by how we live and what we do, but it has to be spoken at some stage. And the next thing then, anyway, is his co-workers, Timothy and Silas, arrive, and they free him up to be a full-time preacher and teacher. And the point should be made here that Paul arrived with no one but in the space of those first eight verses we find out God has given him at least six solid co-workers Priscilla and Aquila Silas, Timothy Tidius, Justice and Crispus so for sure one of the ways that God helps us is to send us folk to help carry the load and do the work besides Christoph the session here has hired three people and is looking for more Jesus himself says pray for more workers to harvest his harvest 
So really, if you're facing up to a task on your own, the first thing any of us should be doing is to pray for more help. The next stage, however, turns into a big problem because the Jewish folk in the synagogue reject his message and he storms off. And it appears that he at this time has some success, in fact a rather large success, because the leader of the synagogue, along with his house, converts. So Paul effectively splits the synagogue with his preaching, and that's, that's a pretty big deal. Like if, uh, if Christoph or I were to convert to Islam, it would send shockwaves in this church, wouldn't it? So can you imagine what Paul's after doing to this synagogue? So it's no wonder that they organized against him. But before that, God talks to him in this dream or vision or whatever it is. And again, God wouldn't have had to tell him not to be scared if he wasn't actually scared, which is one of the things he makes the point of saying to him. Now let me say here, I I don't know if God ever speaks to Christians in dreams like that or, or visions. I've heard stories for sure, but I don't know. I do know, however, that Paul didn't have the New Testament. He wrote lots of it because he was an apostle, set apart for a specific task, one of which was to write for God. And people back then could talk to him if they needed to know something. But we have the complete Bible. It's full of good news. Even here, God tells Paul not to be scared. And I counted this morning 11 verses in the New Testament alone that teach the very same thing. So we don't need dreams or visions to be encouraged by God. Anyway, on the back of that, he stays there a year and a half until the Jews get him arrested and brought before the local governor. And what happens here? In the middle of an anti-God Roman Empire court, the Christian wins the case. Now it's not because of any love of Christian morality, It's simply that the governor feels that this is outside of his remit. And the effect is that for the first time ever, Christianity has some approval to practice as it sees fit in the eyes of the law, which is exactly what Paul does. And then for the rest of the story, as I kind of skimmed over, he travels on to Ephesus and back to Jerusalem. Now here's the thing. What did Paul do there? He evangelized and church planted, I suppose, within a very pagan city, one awash with the smell of sex and money. Not an easy environment. And God sent him help in the form of co-workers. He spoke to them directly. And the local government gave Paul their blessing, effectively, for his work. Now there's two, two things, I think, that we could, two mistakes we could make just listening to this story, right? You want to know how I can face similar big tasks or you can face similar big tasks like Paul does here. And you read this story and you say to yourself, well, all I need is faith. Paul preached in the power of the Spirit and that's what I will do too. I don't need anyone nor any special words from God nor do I need backing or approval from the state. I can do it on my own. I will rely on God 100%. But that's like the story, I'm sure this is a very popular story, of a guy in the flood. you know this one? Uh, it's like the only sermon story actually I can remember from when I was a kid. This guy, his, his house is flooded, he goes up on the roof, and uh, he's, the water gets higher, and then a canoe comes, a boat comes, and a helicopter comes. He doesn't get on anyone because he's like, God's going to save me. 
And then he drowns and he dies and he goes up to God and he says, God, what would you do? And God's like, I sent you a canoe, a boat and a helicopter. You know that story? Right, so sometimes you got something to do and God sends you what you need to get the job done. That's very clear from this, from this passage. That's why it's okay to strategize and to think about how you're going to do something. God gave you a brain. Why shouldn't you use it? Get on the canoe. But on the other side of the coin, if we look at a situation that's hard, you know, you look at Belfast today, like, and Christoph was talking about this again two couple of weeks ago, I'm kind of repeating myself, but you look at around Belfast and you're like, how can I do anything in this culture? What I need, you say to yourself, is about half a dozen good people, a direct word from God, and then I'm going to get a good lawyer and a favorable judge, I happen to know one, and I'm going to get that law changed. And then we'll do some damage for the kingdom. Well, if you're saying that, you've got another type of problem. Because your faith isn't in the right place either. So what should we do? And you know, I've been talking about evangelism here a lot today. And we've been hearing about it a lot for the last few weeks. But like Paul set up a church here, you'd have to assume he was doing more than just evangelizing. In our everyday lives, we have to follow God. So whatever Paul's modus operandi was, it's good for us every day too. And actually, we've already read it. When Paul looks back at his ministry in, in Corinth, he doesn't put the cause of the conversion of people through his preaching on the things that God so obviously did for him. But of course, we know that it did happen. He did get six co-workers. He did get a word from God. And he did get state backing for his working. But when he sums it up, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. As I've said, Paul is not against strategies. In many ways, when you read the letters he wrote, he was quite a wise man. He knew how to handle people. We saw a few weeks ago that he knows when to be hard when he cut John Mark out of the mission. Remember that bit? He said, no, you're not coming. But he's also demonstrably a loving man. And in many of his letters, I, I sometimes feel embarrassed. He's almost gushing in the words that he uses about his brothers and sisters. So he's a good leader. He's a kind man. And yet at the heart of it all, he comes back to the cross. That's what makes Paul normal. And it can make you or I normal as well. Because only someone who knows that the cross, about the cross, is able to say things like they are weak and trembling and that their words are not fancy and yet still feel confident that the Spirit can be powerful through him. The cross, and again, actually Graham was kind of talking about this last week, it undermines our self-righteousness. You, anything, any time that we begin to think that it's our strategies that are getting the results or our words that are changing the hearts of people around us, the cross comes in and cuts that down. On the other hand, the cross and its message overwhelms the woe is me, sure I couldn't do anything, I'm a little scaredy cat that can't be used by God kind of attitude. And the cross comes in and says, it's not about you. 
power comes from the Spirit and not you. That's why I say Christians are the truly normal ones. Because Christianity is the only religion that honestly appraises our situation. Truly appraises it. But then genuinely gives us the power to do the things we should do. I was talking to... uh, I was actually talking to Christoph during the week about this. And we were saying that very often these days, preachers end on the cross or Jesus and leave it at, you know, isn't Jesus amazing kind of stuff. Which, of course, he is. And uh, he might have something for us to do as well. But, or sorry, the, the issue is he might have something for us to do as well. And sometimes just landing it on Jesus misses the point. But today, actually... It's one of those days I'm just going to leave it at the cross. I know, right? I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years. It's good. And all of many of you here are very talented people. And the world and life has rewarded you accordingly. And others have led a life that is... And this isn't a strict dichotomy either. But others have led a life that is full of many bad decisions and selfish, sinful actions. Neither is better than the other. And both have access to the power of God. If you want to be normal, admit your weakness, be it pride or fear or both, turn to God and see what happens when you step out with him. See what happens when you step out with him. You never know. That's it today. So, actually, let, let, let me pray. Let me pray for that. That's too much of a handbrake. Um, Father, thank you for uh, what you did through this man, Paul. Um, I do pray that for all of us, we'd grab a hold of the cross. And whatever that means for us, Father, would we confess our pride or our fear and follow you into something It might look spectacular, but follow you wherever you want us to go. Help us to absorb this message and live for you every day. Amen.